this last Tuesday marked the 46th anniversary of Roe versus Wade in the United States. And before I dive in the message today, I felt like I needed to share something with you. It's certainly been all over social media and one of the hot topics in the last few days. So on Tuesday marked the 46th anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision that legalized abortion in the United States. And to commemorate that, New York made a decision to authorize abortion up until the point of birth. And so across social media, there was a mass outrage from Christians, and well, there should be. It wasn't just that they came down with this law, but that they broadcast it, celebrated it, called in all the cameras for the press conference signing, lit up the tower there at the World Trade Center region, and they celebrated as if they had found the cure for cancer. What most Christians don't know is that when New York made this law, it's now the 25th state in the United States that now authorizes abortion up until the point of birth. Half of the United States have a similar law as the law of New York. Now, many of those have some requirements for some sort of medical or psychological reason that the mom aborts her child right before birth. But most of those laws are so broadly written that if you say, I'm depressed, that'll suffice. You can abort your child up until the point of birth. And so one expert I was talking to the other day that deals very closely with ministry to Planned Parenthood was saying, if we overturn Roe versus Wade tomorrow, we still have the problem of 25 states authorizing abortion up until the point of birth. And so what can we do as Christians? Well, number one, we pray. And number two, it is critical that we reach the younger generations and share with them the message of life that we find in God's word. And I share this every once in a while with you, and I don't want you to forget, those of you who are uh, part of some older generations, some are still a part of the World War II generation that are here, others baby boomers. As you look back at those that are the millennials or those even younger than the millennials, our teenagers are part of the group called Generation Z. Sometimes we get a little discouraged because we see some things in the younger generations. It seems like they're straying from biblical morality, and in many ways they are, but hold on to this little nugget of blessing. The younger generations are more pro-life than their parents, and that is a huge blessing. So as we continue to reach the younger generations and share with them the message of life from God's Word, we pray that God would restore a value for life in the United States, and we continue to educate our friends and educate the younger generations and let them know how precious life is from the point of conception all the way until a loved one takes their final breath on hospice. It's not just one side of the spectrum. We value life because God is the creator of life, and he values life. Amen? So church, keep praying. Don't just put all your hope in the courts because the courts probably aren't going to fix this problem. God can fix this problem in the hearts of one person at a time as he restores a value for life in those that are there. And if you're here today and you have been affected personally by abortion, possibly some of you have had chosen to have an abortion yourself or you had a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend that pressured you into making a decision. If you are affected personally by this, I want you to know that we serve a God who is full of grace and forgiveness. 
And that sin is not unforgivable. And so we move forward from this point advancing life. But at the same time, if you have made a mistake in this regard in the past, God can forgive you. He can wash you clean. And he can give you a brand new start. Amen. And we hold on to the hope, as he said, let the little children come unto me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. This little one whose life ended too early, we believe that little one is in the presence of God in heaven. Let's give him some praise and glory. Thank you, Lord. Oh, Heavenly Father, we love you and we pray, oh God, that we would stand firmly on your word. And that we would advance life, O God, because you are a God who is the creator of life and you are the sustainer of life. And so, Lord, I just pray for the little ones in this nation that you would protect them by touching hearts one at a time. That you would be opening minds one at a time. And we pray that this younger generation, Lord, will win the fight for life. That the older generations, my own included, may not have fought as fiercely as we should have. We pray that our younger generations would win the fight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, there was a a very cocky science professor that took a a new job at a junior college in a Midwest town, and, and he showed up on his first day and began teaching his first science class, and it took all of about five minutes for those students in that class to figure out this guy was an atheist and he was proud of it. He stood up in front of his class and he said, unless you shake off old-fashioned views and act for yourself, the world will leave you behind. Well, he said, putting your faith in God won't get you anywhere. He said, take rainmaking. When the farmers prayed for rain, what did they get? They prayed for rain, they got nothing but the dust bowl. But now we know we just send up a plane and we drop some chemicals on top of a cloud and poof, there's rain. There's no question about that, is there? Uh, One farm boy in the back row raised his hand and he said, well, professor, there's still one question we have to answer. Who brought us the cloud? Pretty good question, don't you think? Who brought us the cloud? We, of course, know God brought us the cloud. Today we're going to talk about the difference between doubt and stubborn unbelief. There is a big difference, and we need to dive into God's Word today. I encourage you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Also, if you could uh, make sure you have uh, your message notes with you with a pen or pencil to fill in some blanks, jot down some notes along the way. We have those in your bulletin because they are useful as we're trying to remember what we're learning and hiding God's Word in our hearts. Two Sundays ago... When we were together in worship, we explored Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. King Herod Antipas had thrown John the Baptist into prison, even though John had done nothing to deserve imprisonment. John had done nothing wrong. His imprisonment was unjust and it was unfair and it just didn't make any sense to John. So after several months of being an innocent man behind bars, John understandably got down in the dumps and started to have some doubts and disappointments with Jesus. Even though John had seen with his own eyes the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus in the form of a dove, even though he had heard with his own ears the voice from the Father in heaven saying, This is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Even still, John had doubts. He had doubts. 
John still wasn't convinced that Jesus was the promised Christ. One of the reasons for his doubt must have been because Jesus' ministry was missing the fire and the, uh, and the brimstone that John had expected Jesus to bring. John was looking for wrath and judgment, but instead Jesus brought mercy and grace. That didn't make sense to John. John did the, the best thing he could possibly do, though, with his doubts. He went to Jesus with those doubts. Amen. He went to Jesus with those doubts. He sent two of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Well, Jesus allowed John's followers to watch him perform some more miracles. And then he sent this message back with them to give to John. There in verses 22 and 23 of Luke chapter 7, this was Jesus' message sent back to John. He said, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Well, when he heard that, John knew that Jesus had just done in plain view of his disciples what had been prophesied more than 600 years earlier about the coming Messiah. According to Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61, Jesus would be coming as the Messiah, as the one who would open the eyes of the blind and preach good news to the poor and heal those who were sick. And so all indications are that John received that message and he stood firm in his faith And he stayed faithful to Jesus Christ until his dying day. Like most of us, John was a follower of Jesus Christ who at times struggled with doubt. Today, Jesus is going to identify a group of Jews who were dealing with something much bigger and something more dangerous than doubt. Unlike John, these men didn't struggle with occasional doubt. These men were plagued with persistent unbelief. And as we dive into this next passage, we'll see there is a big difference between doubt and stubborn unbelief. Here we are in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Say amen if you're there. Here we go, starting in verse 24. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Well, John the Baptist's two messengers returned to John to share with him the encouraging answer that Jesus had given to this question. And after the messengers left Jesus, Jesus spent a few minutes here speaking to the crowd about John. In verse 24, Jesus asked the crowd an important question. What did you go out into the desert to see? Now, it had only been about a year Since John had been at the very pinnacle of his ministry, remember, he went out before Jesus as the forerunner to Christ. And he was out there in the wilderness, out there in the desert, and then he went over to the Jordan River, and he was preaching to crowds of hundreds, possibly even crowds of thousands. 
And then he was there in the Jordan River, and he's preaching a sermon there standing waist deep in the water as people one by one are coming, and he's baptizing him. He's baptizing and he's preaching. He's baptizing and he's preaching. So as Jesus is speaking to this crowd here, this crowd, most of them, a year earlier, had probably been out there at some point or another to hear the preaching of John. Many in this crowd, maybe even most in this crowd, had even been baptized by John the Baptist. And so Jesus asked them a natural question, what did you go out into the desert to see? It's a bit of a rhetorical question. And so he answers it himself. He throws out these three possible answers. Answer number one there in verse 24, did you go out to see a reed swayed by the wind? That was the first possible answer, a reed swayed by the end. Well, what does Jesus mean? I think we've got a video up on the screen. We have that working back there today. Now, let me ask you, how many of you would take your families and hike across uneven terrain 10 miles to stare at this for four hours? Not too exciting. If you want to see a weed blowing back and forth, just look out your back window. You know, especially in the springtime when the tumbleweeds are just whipping through our yards. You know what? Reeds on the water, it's slightly more interesting than a tumbleweed blowing down the street, but not much. I'm getting tired of hearing it. Let's turn that thing off. And so Jesus asked, did you go out to see a reed blowing in the wind? What did he mean by that? Well, there's a couple possibilities. I think, first of all, he was pointing out that John was no ordinary man. John was no ordinary man. Just as we wouldn't want to hike five miles or ten miles up and down hills and uh, in the hot sun to go see a little reed blowing in the wind, say, you didn't go out to see an ordinary man, did you? I don't think so. The second thing I believe Jesus is pointing out, this even more so, John was not a compromiser. A reed simply blows in whatever direction the wind is blowing. If the wind is blowing this direction, the reed will blow that direction. If it's blowing that direction, the reed will blow that direction. Jesus is pointing out, you guys didn't go out to see a compromiser. Uh, John was not one that was just going back and forth with the popular teaching at the time. The Pharisees did that. The teachers of the law oftentimes did that. Your average rabbi, you might make the case, did that. But that wasn't John the Baptist. There was a reason that John the Baptist was thrown into prison by Herod Antipas and not a Pharisee. There's a reason he was thrown in prison and not a rabbi from Nazareth. There was a reason that John the Baptist was thrown in prison and not one of the members of the Jewish high ruling council, the Sanhedrin. Why was John thrown in prison? Because he was the only one who was brave enough to stand up and tell King Herod the truth. You married your niece. That's sick. You told your brother to divorce his wife, or more specifically told her to divorce him so she could marry you after you divorced your wife. That's sick. And John the Baptist, he didn't mince words. He told told Herod what he had done that was wrong and against God's word. That's why he was the one thrown in prison. So Jesus says, no, you didn't go out to see a reed blown by the wind. He was not a compromiser. He gives a second possible answer in verse 25. Well, maybe you went out to see John because he was a man dressed in fine clothes. A more literal translation says a a man dressed in soft clothes. And Jesus says, no, that's not the case either. 
Was John the Baptist a snappy dresser? Not exactly. Was he wearing an Armani robe? Gucci sandals? Ralph Lauren yarmulke up on top? The dude probably hadn't combed his hair in 10 years. He's wearing camel's hair. He probably smelled more homeless than like a guy from the palace. And so, no, you didn't go out to find a man in fine clothes because you would go to a palace to see someone in fine clothes. John, verse 25, Jesus says, did you go out in the desert to see a man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. And then Jesus gives a third answer in verses 26 and 27. He asked the same question for a third time. What did you go out into the desert to see? And this time Jesus gives the right answer. Did you go to see a prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Am I a little loud out there? I feel a little loud up here, Javier. As John sat in that prison cell, he must have felt at times that Jesus had forgotten about him. But Jesus hadn't forgotten about him, had he? Jesus took this opportunity to affirm John not only as a true prophet of God, but as the fulfillment of Malachi 3, which had been written more than 400 years earlier. Jesus takes this opportunity to make clear who John the Baptist was in God's master plan and also to pave the way for what he is about to say in the upcoming verses about unbelief. So take another look at what Jesus says in verse 29. I tell you, among those born of women, there was no one greater than John. That's a really nice compliment, isn't it? That's a great compliment. Of of those born of women, there's no one greater than John. But that's only half the sentence. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Let me be honest with you. When I first read a verse like that, and I read the second part of that verse, to me it kind of sounds like a backhanded compliment. Anyone else feel that way? It's like he's building him up, but, you know, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than you, John. You know, you're great, but you're not that great. You know, to me, it, it seems like a backhanded compliment it comes across that way. But is it really in Jesus' mind? Not at all. Let's chew on this for a few moments. I want you to think of it this way. If I tell you that you are one of the most moral persons I've ever met and that you are one of the most important persons in my life, Are you going to be offended if I don't invite you after church today to come live in my house? I hope not. I hope not. You may be one of the most moral persons I've ever met. You may be one of the most important persons in my life, but it doesn't mean you're going to sleep in one of my beds. Because those beds in my home are reserved for my wife and my four daughters And to some extent, to our dog Molly and to our gecko and to our two goldfish. Not that we provided them with a bed. But you know what I mean. It's not a matter of importance. It's not a matter of morality. It's a matter of position. It's a matter of position, and that's what Jesus is getting at here. When compared to John the Baptist, every Christian is greater in position, but not necessarily in character or importance. Does that make sense? Why is that? Well, for starters, it's a simple fact that the lowest place in heaven is an upgrade from the best place on earth. Would you agree with that? 
Man, sometimes when I'm talking to kids, I like to tell them, here's what heaven's like. It's like John's Incredible Pizza and Hometown Buffet and Chuck E. Cheese and Disneyland and Walt Disney World and Epcot Center and Magic Mountain and Universal Studios and Knott's Berry Farm all rolled into one, and it's even better than that. Amen? It's so much better than that. The worst place in heaven is better than the greatest place on earth. Now, you know what? I did something kind of fun when I was preparing for this message. I went on TripAdvisor and checked out some glorious hotels in Barstow. This was one of my favorites. To protect the not-so-innocent, I will call this the Desert Oasis Motel. The Desert Oasis Motel. This woman from Australia was visiting Barstow. I have no idea why, but this woman from Australia was visiting Barstow. She stayed at the Desert Oasis Motel, and here is her review. She labeled her review, Terrible Run. Here's what she wrote. The place is disgusting. Absolutely dirty. Bad smell from the entrance to the rooms. In the rooms, there were cockroaches everywhere. Even in the beds, in the walls, the bathroom was horrible. We had to ask for a refund and find another hotel that night. The lady was nice. I felt bad for her, but that place was inhospitable. Let me ask you, would you rather spend a night in the very best room at the Desert Oasis Motel in Barstow or the worst room at the Ritz-Carlton? conveniently located up the road from Beverly Hills. Would you rather spend a night in the best room at the Desert Oasis Hotel in Barstow or possibly the Disneyland Hotel next to the Disneyland Resort? Of course, all of us would say, you know, I'll take the worst room at the Ritz-Carlton. I'm not going to the Roach Motel. And that kind of gives us an idea of the difference between earth and heaven. Heaven is an upgrade from the highest place on earth, right? an upgrade. John the Baptist lived and ministered under the old covenant with all the weaknesses of the old covenant. But we as Christians live and minister under the new covenant with all of the superior upgrades of the new covenant. So when John said what he said, excuse me, when Jesus said what he said here in uh, verse 28, he was not downgrading John. He was upgrading Christians. Big difference. He's not downgrading John. He's upgrading Christians. That's a little something called grace. You may have heard this before. Grace is an acronym. It stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. Is John the Baptist more moral than you are? Probably. Did he have a more important role in history than you play? Quite likely. But you have a higher position than John because of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Amen? Isn't that exciting? Even goof-ups like me? Even goof-ups like me. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you may not be more moral than John. You may not be more important than John. But despite all that, in position you are greater than John. Congratulations. Because of the grace of God through Christ, you have been upgraded. So please don't squander your upgrade, okay? Don't squander your upgrade. Live your life in grateful thanks to God and live as he's called you to live. Now we pick up. In verse 29, still here in Luke chapter 7. Jesus continues talking to the crowd after John's followers have left. 
says, I tell you, uh, among those born of women, there is none greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Then verse 29, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like, Jesus asked. Well, they're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge for you, and you didn't cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and you say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. You say, well, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all of her children. In these verses, we can more clearly understand why Jesus had asked the question he had just asked of the crowd about who they had gone out to see in the wilderness. John wasn't a reed swayed by the wind. He wasn't a snappy dresser. He was the promised prophet who would pave the way for the coming Messiah. Once they believed that truth, it was natural for them to believe the truth about Jesus himself. Verse 29, that's the basic message that is conveyed in that verse. Even the tax collectors who had been baptized by John acknowledged that John was the promised forerunner to the Christ, and Jesus himself was the promised Christ. It was a natural progression. If you have faith in John, you will naturally have faith in Jesus. But verse 30 says, The Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. In other words, the religious leaders who didn't believe in John rejected John's call to repent and be baptized in preparation for the coming Messiah. And since they rejected his call to get ready for Jesus' coming, it shouldn't surprise us at all that they rejected Jesus when he did come. They rejected John, and in turn they rejected Jesus. God had some great plans for the Jewish religious leaders, but when they rejected John the Baptist, they rejected God's plans for them. And once they started down the path of unbelief, They followed it to its natural conclusion, which was the day they stood before Pontius Pilate and said, crucify him, crucify him. May his blood be on our hands and on our children's hands. How could they possibly get to a point where they were crying for the blood of the Messiah? They could do that because they had started down that path of unbelief and they stubbornly refused to turn around. In verses 31 through 35, Jesus offers a a wonderful little comparison. Uh, You could call this a parable in verses 31 through 35. One of the commentaries I was looking at had a wonderful name for this parable. You know what he called it? He calls this the parable of the brats. Isn't that good? (laughs) The parable of the brats. Well, what's Jesus talking about, these kids out in the marketplace? Well, in Jesus' day, it was common for kids in Israel to play a couple games. They would play the game Weddings. And they would play the game funerals. And so when they played the game weddings, a kid would maybe be dancing around and maybe sing a song. Or maybe there'd be a little boy and a little girl pretending to come down the aisle. And then all the other kids would start singing a nice wedding song or dancing or pretending they were at a wedding. It's a wonderful game of make-believe. And then maybe they got bored of that, so another child would start singing a dirge or talking in a very somber voice, and he would pretend to be a rabbi conducting a funeral service. And then all those around him, all the kids would go, ah, 
<laughs> and they would start crying and mourning, pretending they were at a funeral. And so all of those in the crowd would have recognized these common childhood games. Ooh, we're getting loud now. And so Jesus draws their attention to these common childhood games and basically says, that's what the religious leaders are doing. They're trying to play these games and they get all upset when someone doesn't want to play their games. I thought about this example. Imagine Billy and Johnny are best friends. And Billy goes up to Johnny at recess and says, hey, Johnny, you want to play Foursquare with me? And Johnny says, feel like playing four square today. Now, Billy doesn't know why Johnny said that. Maybe Johnny just sprained his ankle at home earlier that morning. Maybe Johnny's got a tummy ache. He's not feeling too well. He might have to go home early. Maybe Johnny just doesn't feel like playing four square. But Billy doesn't take that news very well from Johnny, does he, that Johnny doesn't want to play four square with him. Johnny's his best friend, but if you were to fast forward 60 seconds after Johnny says, nah, I don't feel like playing, if you were to fast forward 60 seconds, you would be surprised to find out that Billy is calling his best friend Johnny every name in the book. You're the dumbest kid I've ever known. You're playing, you might as well just fall asleep. sang a dirge and you did not cry. Well, that's Jesus coming onto the scene. And Jesus wasn't lining up with the Pharisees' idea of how things should be done. And so they get mad at Jesus. And at times, Jesus was doing even the exact opposite of what John the Baptist did. John the Baptist never drank alcohol. Jesus had no problem taking a drink at a party or an event or a wedding or something. And so John the Baptist, they said he was demon-possessed because he didn't drink. Jesus, when he does drink, they say he's a drunkard. 
And so it's one of those kids, it doesn't matter what Johnny says, he's going to be called names by Billy because Billy doesn't like what he's doing. And there's this theme with these spoiled brat kids. We don't like what John the Baptist is doing. So regardless of how he does it or what he says, we're going to call him names and say he's doing a good job. And we don't like Jesus because Jesus isn't aligning with our way of doing things. And so we're going to call Jesus every name in the book. He was stubborn and unbelievable. Stubborn unbelievable. The Pharisees and teachers of the law had slandered John, saying that he had a demon, and they slandered Jesus by discussing his teaching as well. Bottom line, the religious leaders' hateful criticism of John and Jesus stemmed from their stubborn unbelief, and their unbelief was literally confirmed. Their refusal to accept the clear, observable facts about John and Jesus was insane. Their slanderous accusations were insane, and their jealous, vengeful drive to murder Jesus was especially insane. They refused to accept the clear truth right in front of their eyes that John was the forerunner and Jesus was the Christ. God had made clear that there was plenty of evidence to prove these two facts. What Jesus said in verse 35, your sins will be forgiven you. share with you three differences that seem to outline among the leaders because there is a big big difference number one doubt is a matter of not knowing but unbelief is a matter of not knowing doubt is a matter of the mind unbelief is a matter of the will what do i mean by that well it's one thing to doubt god's goodness and plans because we can't grasp the plans of god Sometimes in this life, when all we can have in front of us are our five senses and experience what's going on, sometimes we just can't wrap our minds around how God could possibly pull me out of this mess I'm in. You know, I've been on drugs and alcohol for so long, how could God possibly pull me out of this? I've got that addiction notice, how can God possibly pull me through? My marriage is completely broken, how could God possibly heal my marriage? Sometimes we just can't wrap our minds around it, and a Christian will come and say, God is at work. He will work all things together for good. Stay strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Present your request to Him. And sometimes we just don't know how things happen. But when it comes to unbelief, that is exactly what it is. It's not just a matter of being unable to wrap your minds around how God could pull you through. It's a stubborn purposeful, intentional desire to refuse to believe. No matter what evidence I'm presented with, I'm not going to believe. No matter how much God has proven himself to me, I'm not going to trust his promises. Number two, doubt is often mirrored by hateful and malicious criticism. In fact, it's Jesus is a matter of not knowing, but unbelief is a matter of not knowing. 
Have you ever tried to argue someone into heaven? I have. You know what my success rate is? Big old goose egg. I've never successfully argued someone into heaven. I used to love in college to get into apologetics and debate. Man, I'd debate them about scientific apologetics and proof in the solar system and in the universe that there is a creator and that creator must be the God of the Bible. And I love studying apologetics and talking to people at a philosophical level about evidences for God and, and the holes in the fossil record and all this good stuff. I enjoy those topics. But I've never successfully argued someone into heaven because when it comes down to it, if they stubbornly refuse to believe, the only thing that can happen is to pray that God would change that stubborn heart. Until they change that stubborn heart, they will not be saved by an intellectual argument. Number three, unbelief puts our circumstance between us and God. This is so good. But faith, even doubting faith, puts God between us and our circumstance. Unbelief puts our circumstance between us and God, but faith, even doubting faith, puts God between us and our circumstance. You see the difference there, don't you? You come up against a wall. You come up against a difficulty. And if you've chosen stubborn unbelief, you're going to focus on that circumstance and refuse to look at God. But if you are a true believer and follower of Jesus Christ, that has put your faith in Jesus Christ, when you come up against that wall, when you come up against that problem, as hard as it is, even though you may be wrestling with doubt, you're going to do your very best to bring God in between you and that circumstance. God, I can't traverse around this wall without you. I can't climb over this wall without you. I invite you into this situation to help me get past this obstacle, to help me get past this problem. There's a big difference there. I'm going to put God between me and my impossibility, whereas the person who chooses stubborn unbelief is going to focus on the impossibility and shove God aside. Oh, it's so important to know that as Christians who have chosen to put our faith in Jesus Christ, it's not the end of the world if we have some doubts. As we saw a couple weeks ago, sometimes those doubts strengthen our faith. And we come out on the other side of those doubts with a stronger faith than ever before. But if you're here today and you're crossing your arms and you've stubbornly refused to follow Jesus Christ, to believe in Him, to trust in Him, you're going to go through this life on your own and you want nothing to do with Him, I pray for you today that God would soften your stubborn heart and choose for the first time to believe. Open your heart to Him. Allow Him to come in and He will walk through this life with you. There's no better way to live and with Jesus Christ walking through those doubts with you. Lord, we come to you and we thank you for dying on the cross for us. We thank you, O oh God, for your patience with us during tough times, for loving us when we don't deserve it. 
and for doing for us, Lord Jesus, on the cross what we could never do for ourselves. Lord, I pray for those today going through periods of doubt as they're dealing with some difficulties and some emotional strain. Lord, I pray that you would speak peace into their hearts right now, that you would give them the promise of hope that things will get better, that they will get past this tough time they're going through. Lord, I just pray that you would move in the hearts and lives of those struggling with some doubts and some disappointments today. And Lord, those that may be dealing with something much deeper and more critical, their stubborn unbelief, Lord, would you lift the veil and help them to see the truth of the gospel, maybe for the very first time. Would you soften that stubborn heart, Lord? All of us at some point in our life have to come to that point where we say, God, would you replace my heart of stone with a heart of flesh? Lord, I pray that you do some heart transplanting for those of us that may need that today. Lord, do your work in our heart. Do your work in our minds. Do your work in our doubts and in our disappointments. And walk through us every step of the way until you call us home. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's be standing right now as the praise team comes up. If you're here today and you need to be prayed for, we'll be up front, be in back. We'd love to pray with you. If you're here today and you need to make a decision for Jesus Christ, we're here to help you with that decision also. Maybe you need to make a first-time decision. Maybe you need to be baptized today. You've never been baptized. Well, we're ready to go. 